0: And uh, are so grateful. We're so grateful for the opportunity to be with one another and to be with you. God, I ask that your spirit be present in this room tonight. I know that it is, but God, I ask that we feel your presence tonight, so that what we read and what we hear and what we learn really does dig deep into our souls and really does change our lives. Because God, we know what you have called us to do, and we need all the help that we can get. God, I ask and pray that during this next 30 minutes that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, I ask that they be acceptable to you. For you are our rock and you are our Redeemer. We love you so much and are grateful for your love. It's in your Son's name that we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we are in the book of Acts, and this. ...is such a great book. It is essentially the story of the early church. But it's really the second part of a story that was started in the Gospel of Luke. The author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is the same. And so it really is this one story that began before Jesus was even born... Um, and told the story then of Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. And Acts picks up kind of right after Jesus' resurrection, right as he kind of addresses the disciples as the risen Lord and says to them, Okay, here's your job. Go and spread my mission to all the corners of the world. And so then he ascends, and the rest of this book is about how they do that. But it's so important to remember that the main character of this book is Jesus. Even though he's not physically present, he is still the main character of this book. It's in his name that the apostles and the disciples and the missionaries act and, and perform wonders and teach and heal and all sorts of things. It's in his name that all that happens. Um, and it is his reality, who he, the reality of who he is, that is the good news that they spread. It is the fact that Jesus Christ was That is the mission of God that they are now spreading and carrying out to the four corners of the earth. So that's really important to keep in mind as we go through this. Um, The author is writing a few generations after this has gone on, um, probably in like 80 or 90 CE. And he's talking about events that were happening, you know, 40, 50, kind of right after Jesus' life. And... So there's some difference there of perspective that comes across in various places. But again, the purpose of this book is to encourage the church, to encourage the early church by reminding them about where they came from, by reminding them about the stories of their origin so that they know that they are connected to the disciples who were with Christ and connected to Christ, who was sent by God to fulfill God's promises that God made to the Israelite people. So, what we have here is this notion that's so important to this author of where the church is today, for him, for this author, it's a continuation of what God has been doing in the world since the beginning of time. And what's so great about us reading this is that we can have that same perspective. Where we are today is a continuation of God's work in this world from the very beginning. That's cool. That's why this book is very unique and very, very cool to read, Um, because it's our story. It's the story of the church. It's our story. So the story of the church is kind of a messy one. There's a lot of tension. And so every week, I want to remind you of this tension, because it plays out in the various, then, stories that we read each week. Um, They're starting... You know, this group of people, their leader, their the person that they now recognize as God and, and the Savior and the fulfillment of all these promises that God made, he's now kind of gone. Not from their hearts, and he's left, of course, the Holy Spirit behind. But he's not present to teach and, and correct and instruct anymore. And so we have these this group of people who's trying to figure it out. They're trying to be faithful and trying to also live in community. And so there's tension. I don't know if you've ever like lived in a dorm or like in a, you know, within a house with a lot of roommates or in a sorority house or something like that. But when you live with people and you try to like be community together, even though you are of the same ideals and you kind of are doing there doing the same thing, there can be tension, right? Not if that's true in your life. Yes. Okay. So there's tension in the early church. Some of that tension comes from external places. The tension is massive between Christians, Christ followers, who are Jews who happen to follow Christ because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for, and Jews who are not Christ followers, who do not think that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. There's tension between those two groups. Persecution starts, so the Christians um, are targets now. And the Jews target them, and they try to make them targets of the Roman officials, and so it's a religious thing, but it becomes it can become political and as um, the mission the Christian mission spreads into other Roman areas and Roman provinces, it's definitely political um, and so there's tension there there's also tension within because as more and more and more people hear about this, it's not just Jews then who are converting not converting really, but embracing Christianity. It's not just Jews who are doing that. It's Gentiles, which means non-Jews. And so then you have this group of Jews who are still Jews in a lot of ways. I mean, they live and they follow the laws and they um, obey and they uh, they live very specific ways. And when I understand, when I say that, you know, they eat a specific way, they clean themselves a specific way, they worship a specific way, they believe that there's kind of rituals about cleanliness and holiness that they maintain and then all of a sudden you have this group of gentiles these non-jews who according to the jews are like dirty and not holy and not you know someone you want to be around and now you're like lumping them all into this christian community together there's a lot of tension and they got to figure out what rules do they need to require the new folks to follow and how are we going to explain this and how are we going to you know live together and, and function together and minister together when we're so different So there's tension there. And I, you know, that's just a tension that never goes away, is it? So so it's good for us to read this and for us to understand kind of where it came from. We see lots of different characters in this book. And the character that we're reading about at the moment is the character of Paul. He is kind of one of, considered one of the greatest Christian missionaries of all time. And really the entire second half of the book of Acts is Paul's story. He was a Jew, he persecuted the Christians, he encounters the risen Lord, and he has an entire, he embraces Jesus Christ as the Messiah, has a change of heart, and becomes one of the greatest speakers and missionaries and um, champions of the gospel, of the good news throughout the entire world. And so we have been following him on his journeys. He kind of takes these missionary journeys where he starts... In, from his home church in Antioch. And he goes around and he travels all in like what is modern-day Turkey really now. And he plants churches and he preaches in the synagogues. And some people like him and some people don't. And the people that like him become disciples and they join the way or the Christian community or the local church. And the people who don't like him usually like get other folks together and they like run them out of town. And so it's a cycle that happens over and over and over again everywhere he goes. And so we're going to pick up right here... Um, In chapter 19, actually. Just the beginning of chapter 19. Um, We're in the middle of the third Pauline mission, which means it's the third time kind of that Paul has checked back in with Antioch and now has gone back out again to travel to the various churches where he has already planted, various cities where he's already planted churches to encourage them and to kind of reconnect with them. And he's also going to be in new places where he's preaching to new people who haven't heard the message yet. So... We are picking up in 19, so just follow along as I read. While Apollos was in Corinth, Apollos was um, another person who was kind of a missionary who started preaching, um, and we had kind of just read a story about him. And um, he was just a great guy, just, just a great guy. And while he was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. Hold on. I've already read this. We're moving to 1911. <laughs> Basically, it all is good, and um, he's in Ephesus. Okay. Verse 11, sorry. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skiverwer, I I can't say that word. They were Skiverwer, were doing this. Oh, wait, Skiva, never mind. Skiva, I can say that. Okay, sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered them all and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And when this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, this is a really interesting story. Um, and we haven't really seen this kind of thing happen quite like this before. Um, but it's it's introduced with the statement that Paul does extraordinary miracles, okay? And that they happen, God really does the miracles, but they happen through Paul. Now, this is very similar to Peter, if you recognize Peter as one of the disciples. He was uh, one of the main characters of kind of the first section of Acts. And we read about his... He could heal people and, you know, people would come and he would give them blessings and he would, like, exercise the demons and all sorts of stuff. And um, and so we have here this story of Paul and the author is making it clear that just like Peter had power, you know, Paul also has power. And what was that power? It was the power to heal. It was the power to exercise demons. I mean, it was the power to um, kind of to control people's lives in a way and, and control kind of their situations, not control their lives but control their situations and that that is power that's you know power and people can witness that and it can change their hearts then and they can see that and it, it it it's powerful not just over their situation but also then maybe for what they how they connect in the future does that make sense like they see that and they recognize the power over you know their illness but then there's also this power of wow if they have power over my illness then I want to be a part of what they're doing, and so this is a—it's a really important thing. The fact that Paul was kind of associated with healings and exorcisms because that meant that there was some legitimacy going on in the Christian faith, um, some true power to change lives, literally. Um, the problem is, is that the Christians weren't the only ones doing this sort of thing. There were these other groups of people. Um, we, you can encounter them in other areas of scripture. They're kind of referred to as magicians, really, and they're, they use magic to do the same kind of things that we have Paul here doing. And this author is so intentional about clarifying the difference between the power behind Paul's actions and behind Christian um, healings and, and exorcisms and power and. The crazy magician, you know, really not part of this. That's a totally different kind of power. And this author is very concerned with kind of distinguishing between those two. And so that's what's kind of happening here. The author sets up that Paul has this power. And then he refers to some itinerant Jewish exorcists. Um, and these were, were Jews who kind of, uh, who would, who were known. I mean, I guess Jews in general were kind of known to have connection and and communication with um, the spirit world and and abilities to kind of do exorcisms and stuff like that. And so some of those Jews really took advantage of that label and kind of that ability that they were um, credited with. Um, So they they were thought to be especially powerful over spirits in general. And we have these Jews then who are trying to use the Lord Jesus's name. Over these evil spirits and, and kind of saying, okay, in Jesus' name, who Paul proclaims like I, that's how I am gonna have control over you and so we have that set up and then we have this specific story here seven sons of a Jewish high priest um, who was probably more of like a renegade Jew who really wasn't like like in Judaism there are there's like the the rank or the office of high priest and that was like a family and you know you if you were born into this family you could be a high priest. And that was a very, you know, prestigious thing to be and a role to have in Jewish society and Jewish religion and I mean and everything. But then you have these like renegade Jews who would actually set themselves up as high priests really of like the cultic worship that was going on in the different Roman provinces. And so they weren't high priests in the Jewish sense really. They were high priests kind of of their own proclamation in like this cultic worship setting, does that? Are you getting what I'm picking? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Okay, so so this guy was probably was not was probably not a real Jewish high priest. He was a Jew who kind of claimed to be a high priest um, in Ephesus and kind of the cultic worship of Ephesus, and so his sons were doing this, and so we have this really interesting then, interaction between the sons. And this evil spirit. Because, of course, they say, okay, in the name of Jesus Christ, who propoclaims, I command you to come out of this man. And the evil spirit's like, well, wait a second. And I just love this. Like, um, yeah, I know Jesus. I've heard of him before. You know, son of God. Um, I know Paul. Yeah, because he's legit. Um, but who? And you just picture them being like, who in the hell are you? You know, like, I've never heard you. Who are you? Skiva Seriously, that's your dad's name? No, sorry. doesn't ring a bell. And, um, he totally then the, the evil spirit like totally doesn't respond to what they're trying to do. In fact, in fact, he leaps, leaps on them, the man who he's in leaps on them, mashes them so that they are naked and have to run like abused and naked out of the house. I mean, that's, that's like some, there's some crazy shit we got going on here. <laughs> I mean, really like that's crazy when you think about it. Right. And so, This is a really crazy situation here, Um, especially when you read about what the crowd's response is, right? They're not like, oh, that poor man who still is captured by a demon. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus' name is awesome. This is amazing. This is incredible. So incredible that I'm going to change my life. And you're like, wait a second, what just happened here? You know, these seven dudes like, are abused by this evil spirit. They run out. They're naked, running through the streets. The poor man is still, you know, he's still exorcised by the demon. And people respond in this kind of inexplicable way, in my opinion. You know, I read this, and I was like, I don't, wait, I don't get it. I had to, like, go back and read it multiple times because I was sure I probably missed a detail that explained why they responded this way. But I think what's important to recognize here is that the author, again, like I said, is so concerned with kind of distinguishing between the power of Christian witness and and Christian message and, you know, the power of Jesus' name and magic that people do and they're trying to do in Jesus' name. And they're doing it in Jesus' name, not really for Jesus' sake are they? Because they're kind of these renegade, itinerant Jewish people who just take advantage of the fact that they can use Jesus' name for their own ends, for their own authority. Those are two different things. And the author is, that's what the author is trying to point out here. So it's really strange that this is, and this happens all the time in biblical stories, like there's this one character and you kind of, identify with that character, and then you realize that that's not the character you should be identifying with at all. And so that's kind of the guy with the demon. Like, you kind of, we feel sorry for the guy with the demon because you're like, he has a demon, you know, that sucks. But he, like, this is actually not a story about the guy with the demon. So he kind of just leaves the story because the story is actually about the proper use of the name of Jesus and the power that goes with it. And the idea, the whole point here that the author is trying to make is the name of Jesus and the power that goes with it is not something that you can take advantage of. It's not something that you can um, use to your own advantage. It's not something that you can use for your own gain, um, that you can manipulate however you want to just because you know it's powerful. That's not at all what it is. The idea is that the name of Jesus and the power behind that can really only be experienced Through faith in Christ, through repentance uh, towards Christ, and through connection and community um, within the Christian community. When you are a believer, when you have faith in Christ, when you have repented and connected and accepted that Jesus Christ as the risen Messiah is your Savior and your Messiah and you join then the community, remember there's no such thing as believing in Jesus as the Messiah and not being a part of the Christian community. That like doesn't work at all. If you believe in Jesus, you're a part of the Christian community. You can't, you know, only then, when you have a true relationship with God through Christ, and you're connected in the, in the context of the Christian community, only then is that the proper use of Christ's name and the power that goes with it. Because... Because you wouldn't understand it otherwise. And because but when you do it in that context, in that context, you're not doing it really for yourself. You're doing it for Christ. I mean, that's why Paul, you know, Paul's miracles weren't for Paul's sake. They were for the sake of Christ. So that people would see those miracles and know Christ and want to know Christ. And their lives would change in the context of following Christ. Not so that they would love Paul. And so that 's what's so important, and that 's what kind of this point is and that 's why the people are awestruck they're awestruck that the power of jesus 's name is that is just that the power of jesus 's name and jesus 's mission and jesus 's purpose not just something you can use on your own and that is why people responded and they were awestruck and they started um, they started giving you know changing and like giving away all their all the practices that they used to do and so um, again, kind of distinguishing between the difference between magic and then the power of the of the Christian message, um, the miracles through faith. And so they give away their stuff, and they, they have the first public book burning. Um, and the value of the books was calculated to be 50,000 silver coins, which roughly translated as about $35,000. Which is a lot of money. I mean, really. And... Um, Again, the point here, I think when you read this, you can't help but realize that faith actually requires some sacrifice, you know. And, and the folks who wanted to be a part of this Christian community, um, who wanted to kind of take on this new way of life, they really had to let go of the old way of life. And that, it cost them a little bit to do that but they were so willing to do that because of the power that they had witnessed. I mean, that's a message I think we can all listen to today. If we're really willing to get involved in the new life that Christ offers us, it will require us to let go of the old life, and that might cost us some things. So are we willing to do that? Have we witnessed the power of Christ in our lives, and others' lives to the point where we're real, willing to, to be a part of it. Think about that. All right, let's keep going. Verse 21. Now, after these things had been accomplished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then on to Jerusalem. He said, you know, after I have gone there, I must also see Rome. And so he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he himself stayed for some time longer in Asia. So his plan, in the spirit, remember, the whole mission of the Christian church is led by the Holy Spirit, not by random folks who just have urges. Um, It's to go west, visiting churches. And then he says this phrase, I must go to Rome. And there's something actually very um, uh, obedient about this phrase because it's not... I must go to Rome because for me, the, the way the Greek is written, it actually is kind of this, I must, I'm required to do this in accordance with God's will. So it's this kind of obedient, submissive state statement that he's making where he recognizes that God's call in his life is ultimately to call him to Rome, the mothership of the Roman Empire. You know? Like if he can like start a church in Rome, he has been a good and faithful servant. So, um, so it's this, we have this, as readers, we have this clue, you know, this little taste. And we know, he says, okay, I must go to Rome. And we can, we're can. we all sitting here like, oh, I bet you he goes to Rome at the end, you know. I mean, that's, that's kind of what the author is doing is letting us know what's coming up. And so he sends two of his helpers. He always has helpers around him. And he goes and he stays in Asia. So he stays in kind of modern-day Turkey, stays in Ephesus. And about that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. The way is means the Christian community, the Christian lifestyle. Um, The phrase here, no little disturbance, uh, is often used by this author, especially in Acts. Um, It's kind of an affirmative that's expressed by negating the opposite of what it's expressing. You know what I'm saying? No little disturbance. There was a huge ass disturbance, like, basically, that's, it's the, that's how the phrase goes. But he says, he's it's like, no little this. There was no little this. There was no, you know, but really what he's saying is, there was a huge effing riot, you know? I mean, and that's what happened. So a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. See what I'm saying? So a ton of business. These he gathered together, the artisans, this guy named Demetrius gathered the artisans together with the workers of the same trade. And he said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul guy has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that God's made with the hands are not God's. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. So you kind of see what's going on here. Basically, this guy makes lots of money from making silver statues of Artemis, who was, you know, the Roman goddess, I mean, a Greek goddess, Roman equivalent was Diana, you know, bow and arrow, like Mother Earth, kind of like daughter of Zeus, you know, all those good things. Read Greek mythology if you want a lesson on who Artemis was. Um, And the issue that he has, because he makes so much money creating these statues of her, is the fact that the more people who follow Paul and don't worship Artemis, the less people will buy the statues. And so the issue that this guy has with Christianity is that it's bad for his business. It's an economic thing. And so, what he does is he gathers all the people who are likewise affected, perhaps, the artisans and the folks in that trade, and he's like, hey, listen, listen what's happening. Look at what he's doing. He is, he's, this guy named Paul has gone all over all of Asia, and he has gotten all these people away from our business. By telling them that gods that we make with hands are not really gods. Now, this is a very consistent message. And the interesting thing is Jews, for example, monotheists, um, one-god worshipers, have been saying this for a long time. You know, against idols. Remember the whole, like, golden calf thing? That didn't work out so well. So they're against idol- They're against idols. They're against man-made gods. Um, they've been preaching this message for a long time. It wasn't really an issue because they were just the crazy Jews that other people can ignore and put in the corner. But now this Paul guy has been around, and all of a sudden, like, lots of people from all over Asia are leaving our goddess temple worship community and therefore not, no longer buying our statues. So it's, it's a consistent message that started with the Jews and has then been consistent throughout Christianity. We read the other um, followers of Christ have preached this exact same message, and it hasn't necessarily been a problem until it starts affecting business, you know? Everybody's fine with, like, whatever, as long as it doesn't affect the money I make. You know, I mean, that's, that's where I have to draw the line. So that's kind of what's happening here. And, uh, no, it is what's happening here, not just kind of. Um, and so he, uh, he says not only are they not worshiping her, but there's danger then that the temple of the great goddess will be destroyed. Now, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was actually one of the seven... Wonders of the ancient world. So this was kind of a big deal. And not only would the temple not be worthy, but then people wouldn't actually come here because the majesty wouldn't be as it was. I mean, people would come from all over the world in in a pilgrimage to this temple. So what's happening is like there's this worldwide religion, this worldwide um, cultic practice and worship going on of Artemis that's now being challenged by this relatively small and yet somehow strangely gaining ground religion of one God through this guy named Jesus Christ. That's throwing a lot of people off. But it's so important to note that we're talking global scale in both cases. You know, he's not concerned if a few folks don't come. He's concerned that Hall of Asia is not going to come anymore. Because all of Asia, the whole world, has come before. And so this is, Christianity now is like this much broader threat than really we've seen up until now. We've seen it start in Jerusalem. We've seen it happen with the, kind of among the Jewish population. We've heard stories of it spreading to the Gentiles. We've heard about new churches that were kind of planted here and there. But it kind of seemed like some of them took and some of them didn't. And, you know, there was like people who liked it and people who didn't. But with this situation, what we have here is somebody who is actually very concerned about how global Christianity has gotten. And so that is, that again is powerful. Christianity is gaining influence and gaining power. And the cool thing here that I just want to point out before we wrap up is that um, this is actually a historical like, an accurate historical perspective. Um, there's this leader, Pliny of Pontus, Pontus, and he, um, talked about, he actually, they, we have this in his, in some of the documents that, well, we don't have it, I don't have it, but like, I read about it, and it exists. These documents where he writes about his, like, how he has repressed the Christians in his area and how they've started to see, oh, that people are going back to the, to the temples now and the price of meat, you know, to sacrifice to the gods has gone back up. I mean, he's kind of talking about the influence that Christianity had in his, on the kind of other, the previous world religion, the previous religions. And then when he was able to repress Christianity, kind of the economy of that religion was bouncing back. So this is an actual historical kind of situation that we're talking about here. And it's time to stop. But, um, so you're not going to get to hear about how the riot gets started today. The no little disturbance, the big effing riot gets started today. Um, But if you come back next week, we'll talk about it next week. Um, Just a little like, you know teasing teasing end there um because it's it's pretty funny and pretty crazy, all right, let's say a prayer, God, we are so grateful for um for all that we have, and we're grateful for this time we are able to spend in your word God, I ask that it remain with us all this week, reminding us that um, that we are called to be uh, true followers of you, that we are called to be participants um, in the power of your name god we are called to to maybe let go of the old way so that we can be fully in to the way that you offer us. God, as we get closer to Easter, it's, it's a powerful thing to remember. And so we ask that you impress it on our hearts and our minds this entire week. God, I pray for those who could not be with us tonight. I pray for each of us as we go about our work and our family and our play and our travel. And I ask that we are kept safe in you and that we live lives that honor you. It's in the very powerful name of your son that we pray. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, he is with us. Jesus.